Lord, we thank you for the gift of song. We thank you that we get to write music and for your glory, and it brings us together in worship. I pray now that we would discern your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I was at an event, I think it was last Sunday, and I was talking to a Lutheran pastor, and he, 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 as most people do, thought, thinks it's odd that we drive an hour and 10 minutes you know, to church every Sunday. He's like, so why, why, why do you do that? And I said, well, about five reasons. And I went through my five reasons. And inevitably, inevitably what will happen is I want to start debating doctrine like midway through my reasons. I said, well, let me just finish my list, and then we'll, you know, we can get into, it, get into these things. But the last one, as I said, the, the worship and how we sing is much more, uh, it's, it's energetic, it's wanting to take back the world for Christ. And I connected that to our post-millennialism. And he found that very odd. And I go, so well, you'd have to come experience it, but we, we sing as, as if, and in the hope and the belief, and we think it'll be, it's true, uh, that the, the church will conquer the world. And so naturally that then overflows into our worship, into our singing. And it was a new concept for him. It's like, anyway, I thought that was. So post-millennialism, as we, as we return to our part five of our series here. All right, so we're going to continue on with the questions. Uh, how will this kingdom grow? Let's get into that. So naturally you think of you know, the Great Commission, and Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. All right, but in that, though, right, that comes out of, where, where do we start with this, this growth? Like, how does this, thing, how does this thing go? Well, it starts with first becoming a Christian, right, loving God, uh, believing what Christ taught. And I love this passage in Romans 10. How, then, shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom or in him of whom they have not heard. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So the first way that this kingdom grows, how this growth is going to happen, is by hearing and believing the gospel. Like that is fundamentally the, the, the beginning of any kingdom growth in our community and in people, is you have to first hear the gospel and believe it. If you don't believe it, it doesn't start, with, it doesn't start where you are. Because the kingdom, right, is inside us, okay, and then, it, then, it, then, it, uh, then the world is changed with whatever we touch through our obedience. So the kingdom is immaterial in that it lives, it's inside of us. It's a changed heart in obedience to the Father through Christ. We are a redeemed child, right? We're in, we are God's child now serving him. So whatever we touch then is kingdom dominion. Okay, so, so I don't know, I don't understand. That's why I don't understand the whole, it's just spiritual, not physical thing. It's like, well, how does it not manifest itself physically then through what is spiritually done? So I think those things are, you cannot separate, separate those two things. Okay, so you have the hearing and the believing. Well, what then? 
what next? Well, then it's, it's loving God. Okay, so it's not just enough to believe. You then have to, in that belief, grow in Christ. Wherefore, take unto you, this is Ephesians 6, wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God. Right? It, there is, uh, God is sovereign. He writes the story. We don't write the story. We live the story. But he still expects us to get up and do something for Christ, right? Take on the armor of God. Go be active. Like, be active in your faith. Take your faith seriously. The whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins, I love that, your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of, of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Praying always with all prayer and supplication, in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So what then do we do after we hear we love Jesus? It's fairly simple. Like, we love Jesus. And out of loving Jesus, everything else changes in our life. But you have to love Jesus. Well, what does it mean to love Jesus? What do you think? Pastor says, love Jesus. You say, yes. What do I do? Obey? Obey what? His commandments. It's not obey your own conscience. Okay? It's not obey what you feel like you have discerned from the natural world of what you're supposed to do or what not supposed to do. Okay? God gave us clearly his will that he wants us to live by in his law. And Jesus doesn't hide from this. He doesn't hide from the he doesn't just throw away the Old Testament law as if it's irrelevant now in, in the New Covenant. He's repeatedly, it says, if you love me, keep my commandments. What is, what is the outward sign that someone loves God? That he obeys his commandments. That doesn't save him, of course, but that is how you grow in your sanctification. That's how you grow in your closeness to God, is you obey him. What is his, how do you obey him? You keep his commandments. What is sin? It's the transgression of the law. Sin is the transgression of the law. All right, so obey God's law. So we hear and we believe, and then we obey God's law. That is fundamental. That is first. Before any of this, this growth is going to continue to, to spread and be more effective, that has to come first. All right, well, then what do, after, what do we do after that? Well, then we teach our children. We miss this today. It would be surprising how, how easily this is missed. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Deuteronomy 6. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. Is anything left unaccounted for there? No, the word of God is everywhere in your life, and it continues. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. 
obviously is, is it's guiding all of your sight, it's guiding what you do with your pen, it's guiding life. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. Should we literally write the word of God on our posts and on our buildings? Yeah, sure, I think we should. Yes, that's a good thing. But we should also then, that, that house that is marked by God's word should then obey God's word, right? What people do in that house, they need to obey God's word. So it's both of these things. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear by his name. So what then do we do? We teach God's word. We hear and believe. We love Jesus. And by loving Jesus, we obey his commandments. And then what do we do out of that obedience? We teach. We teach the world. We teach God's word. Now notice, though, this teaching starts in our home. There are a lot of marketing materials produced for private Christian education based on Deuteronomy 6. And the, the spirit of what they're saying in the marketing material, I think, is false. They have good intentions, but I, I think it's false. What, what, they, what, what comes across very clearly is, look, you have the world, you have, you have public education, and you have private Christian education. And if you want to honor Deuteronomy 6, you'll send them to our school. Have you guys ever heard anything like that marketed? Okay, that's completely false. If you go to a Christian school, go to any regular Christian school, and you just look at the students and see who is actually living a godly life when they're 20, 22 years old, and you'll find that it's actually very little to do, whether the, because they're all in the same school, whether they got the same teaching or not, because they all got the same teaching. And let's say they all go to a CREC church, which we can find case studies like this. And yet, a large portion will not, you know, will reject the covenant. Well, they already did that in high school, but it manifests itself in college. Well, why is that? They had the same education, and they had the same preaching. So why the difference? What you will find is the 85% of what a child becomes is based on what happened in the home. And what parents tend to do is because, maybe it's because it costs so much money, but is they tend to ship their kids off to a school and to, a, and to like, uh, sun, or not Sunday school, uh, to youth activities that are Christian, and then they have no interaction with their kids outside of that. The father doesn't actually partake in the child's education at home. He's not actually guiding his son and his daughters through what it means to live as a Christian. How, how do we process movies that we watch? How do we process music that we listen to? How do we, how do we process the, you know, political things in, in this world? How do we live as Christians? That comes primarily from the father to his children in the home. And notice Deuteronomy 6 is almost entirely about the home. So think about this. If, if we don't do that, then the rest of this doesn't matter. You will find God-honoring Christian young men in the public school that I would much rather have part of a ministry than a number of kids I've seen in private Christian schools. That doesn't mean I'm for public education, right? I'm not for public education. I hope it collapses, which it is doing. Praise God, I hope it does. Um, but our Christian schools are not in a good spot if we think as parents, we just send them off and therefore our job is done. 
Christian education, private Christian education, is more like the cherry on top of the sundae, or if you're me, the banana split. Okay, the cher it's the cherry on top. It's not the whole thing. It's a nice addition. It it's, it's works really well if you can get it. It's, a, it's an added blessing that I think is great, and we should have it. But if I had to pick between a father being active in his home with his children, and he has to go to public school, or the father's disengaged and he goes to a private Christian school, I would choose the former all, all day. And just look at the results. It's not hard to find this. Parents being active in the home is where this all starts, and which led by the father, which naturally then goes with, with the mother and on to the children. And so then from strong homes, we can then disciple our neighbors and disciple the, you know, the rest of, of the world. But it has to come from healthy homes. All right, so how will this kingdom grow? Through teaching. Now notice you're teaching in your vocation. So how should a Christian run a plumbing company or, be a plumbing, or just be a plumber who's an employee of a plumbing company or an accountant or a teacher or a guy on Wall Street or an animator at Disney? Wherever, teach the nations. Okay, so love God, teach your family, and when you go out in your vocation, do it as God would have you do it. And do that well. And now you are teaching the nations how this should be done. We're now taking back, we're taking dominion of these spheres. Higher education, uh, Wall Street, big business, small business, sports, everything. We take it back for Christ. We teach them how this should be done. So teaching is what changes the world, right? Gospel teaching. That's not just in words, but also in practice. Any questions on that? This is how the kingdom will grow. This is the growth of the kingdom. All right, well, what's the end result of that growth? Well, we already went through some of this. So Daniel 2, the rock fills the earth. Notice the rock doesn't start, and then it, it gets bigger, but then the earth gets bigger, right? So as, you know, 100,000 years later, the rock is you know, much larger than it was before, but the world is even greater than that. It's not like the world grows at a greater rate than the rock grows. The rock takes over the earth. It fills the earth. The mustard seed, right? The mustard seed grows to a great size where the birds come and have dwelling in the tree. The birds don't manifest. <laughs> let's say the birds were wicked. I don't think we have to grant that. But let's just assume the premillennial uh, you know, interpretation is correct of the birds. Birds have to be wicked in all parables. Let's just assume that's true. It's not like the parable has a thousand birds that just overrun the tree, right, and suck it of life. The birds have blessings under the shade of the tree. Again, so the tree is taking over. Leaven, the leaven takes over all of the bread. Now, some people, what they'll do when they look at what's the end result of the growth is they'll go right to the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is wonderful and obviously a big part of this teaching, but I wouldn't go straight to there. I'd first start with the parables and Daniel 2 and some other places of the growth and then go to the Great Commission as tied with Jesus reigning. Because God sometimes gives us commandments or he gives us tasks to do that we will not succeed in the sense that the result that we pray for is not going to happen. But he tells us to go do it anyways. What's a famous example in the Old Testament of this? 
someone goes and preaches and prays, God says, go do this, but the people don't convert. It's, what's that? Isaiah, Isaiah? Jeremiah, yeah. right? So, the great, so if all we had was the Great Commission and we just isolated it from the other verses, they wouldn't tell me that we are therefore going to complete this. It could be that God wants us to do this thing, but we're going to fail. But if you just do it by itself, I don't think it's conclusive enough by itself. But if you attach it to Jesus reigning, right, and he's bringing forth his and then you tie it to the kingdom and what we have, the, the picture of the kingdom, well, clearly then this is going to happen. This great commission will happen. Jesus will, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let's go through that, that reigning. This is just throughout the Old and New Testament talking about this. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven, and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Clearly, uh, is it Stephen here? Yeah. Uh, Stephen, imagine the peace that comes over Stephen when he sees this. Well, there'd only be peace if by Jesus at the right hand of the Father, he's actually in control. <laughs> right? This doesn't make any sense if Jesus at the right hand is not in, in control. I think a pre-millennial, I love my pre-millennial brothers, I think if they were forced to just work through the kingdom and then Jesus reigning in the kingdom, they would, they would be powerless to actually come back. I think they would just have nothing to say. How do you get around this? And said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God, who be in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. So what's this kingdom that Jesus is going to give back to the Father when the work is done? For he must reign until he hath put all enemies under his feet. This is not a kingdom. Jesus did not ascend to the right hand of the Father, and he sits there, and he's just waiting to then come back someday and then to take over the world in a very short period of time and then offer it back up to God. He's sitting there doing the work, and we're waiting for the enemies to be put under his footstool. And when that happens, he'll offer it up to the Father, and then the second coming will happen. Now, some people will object here and say, well, what about this, the wheat and the tares, right? There are going to be tares when Jesus comes back. So how do you, how do you reconcile that? Say, well, and we talked a little bit about this last time. You can convert nations. Obviously, most of the people would have to be converted for that to actually happen. But let's say most of the world is converted for Christ. Let's say 70%. And all the nations then are God-honoring nations. 
they're going to be they're have cultural differences, but they're all wanting to obey the, the, the law of God and love Jesus. Well, that's still. Wouldn't we agree that was the conversion of the nations? If 70% of the people were converted? Of course, right? That would be the converting of the nations. Well, these 30% are not going to be an outward rebellion in those kinds of nations. They're going to be towing the line. They're going to be abiding by the rhythms of our land, of God's land. But then when, so, so that, that will, would that be then, um, could we say then that his enemies now have been brought under his footstool? I think so. And then at that point, be, I'm curious why, God, why God's going to do this. Uh, but he's going to release Satan, right? He's going to allow this last rebellion to happen where it's going to be pretty remarkable. Like the, the, think about Satan being chained for however long it's going to be, and then he gets to be loosened. So God's going to let him, providentially, let him loosen the world, and he's going to recruit all these people to come and rebel against God's people. But then Jesus is going to take fire from heaven and destroy the people, and it's, it's, not, it's going to be short-lived. But he's going to allow this to happen, which I'm curious why, why he's going to do that. But obviously God is God, and he knows how to write the best story, so we'll be part of it. But that'll be destroyed, and then, the, and then we have the great white throne judgment, you know, it's the resurrection, and then... So the second coming happens, they're destroyed, resurrection, great white throne judgment, and then the new heavens and, and the new earth. So all of that, though, I think is consistent with this. Like, I think that picture fits with, with all of these. Now you say, well, do you have it perfectly put together where every passage where it talks about the wheat and the tares and, and when Jesus comes back, like you tell me you can perfectly interpret all those passages, I would say, no, I don't. I'm sure you can find passages where I would have a hard time explaining a couple of parts of verses, let's say. But again, that, that doesn't bother me because what we're going on here is what interpretation makes general sense of the quantity of the scriptures on this topic? And I think this one has that, that force. Because the alternative is to accept your narrow interpret era, your interpretation on a few parts of verses, but then calls into question you know, entire sections of, of scripture that seem to be indefensible under what, what you're saying. Your interpretation seems to be indefensible. So don't, don't be scared about, or uh, irrationally think you have to like question your position because you can't successfully, because you can't make sense of a certain verse. Because that's probably gonna happen in Anything that's not plain in scripture, you're gonna have some of those verses. If you had none of those verses, it'd be plain, right? So anything that's not plain in scripture, we're gonna have some of those verses. We probably have it on baptism. If I pressed you guys to defend baptism, you'd probably have some verses where you'd kind of waffle on. It's like, I don't, I don't know, I, that one's kind of a tough one for me. But the strength of our position though is not in that one verse, it's in, right, it's in being able to interpret most of the verses and make sense of most of them, okay. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. You know, I was thinking about the, the new heavens and the new earth. We talked about that possibly happening at the end of the millennium and being the, the here but developing language that we'll use. Um, this would actually fit with that then. So if, if all the enemies are under Christ's feet, which then signals these chain of events, then that would also fit where the new heavens and new earth have begun. 
right? It's here. Like this has been a kiss, but it's been completed. And nature is under dominion in the sense of Isaiah 65 and 66, right? As we could say with the, the animals being tamed and man living a long life. All of that was uh, being under his footstool had begun at that, at that moment. So this would also line up with that, with that interpretation. All right, so what is the end result of this growth? A converted world. The world is converted. That is the end result of this growth. All right, so let's go back through this now. We started with this in the first session. Premillennialism, postmillennialism. These are clearly contrasted. Premillennialism, second coming occurs before the millennium. Christ's kingdom arrives at his second coming. The world becomes darker over time until the second coming. We mean spiritually darker. The church loses the battle with the world prior to the second coming. Postmillennialism, second coming occurs after the millennium. Christ's kingdom arrived at his first coming, and obviously is continuing on to, into the future. The world becomes brighter over time until the second coming, and this brightness gets to be so great that the church wins the battle with the world prior to the second coming. The second coming was not needed to win the battle with the world. The church, obviously through Christ, um, wins the battle prior to the second coming. These are clearly contrasted positions. Well, if you work through the five questions that we had, which let's see if we can go through the five from memory really quick. What's the first one? Come on, guys. Yes. Yes, very good. You can do all five if you want. What was the first one? Did, it arrive, did the kingdom arrive at his first coming? Very good. Second one. Did it survive Christ's death? Yes, it did. Third one. Will it grow? Yes, it will. What's the fourth one? How will this kingdom grow? And what is the fifth one? What is the end result of this growth? Bonson, point to you, sir. Nice work. Nice work. It's five questions, guys. Did the kingdom go? Uh, did the kingdom come in his first coming? Yes. Will it did it survive his death? Yes. Is the kingdom growing? Yes. What's, how is this kingdom growing? Through believing the gospel, loving Jesus, and teaching our families and, the, and our neighbors to love Jesus. That's how it grows. And then what's the end result of this growth? The conversion of the world. That's it. And if you keep people in those questions, I think postmillennialism is fairly hard to deny. I don't think it's conclusive yet, like postmillennialism, or um, young earth creation, or even Calvinism, TULIP. But it's pretty strong. Like, I think this is a pretty strong case for it. All right, so as we work through it, Christ's kingdom arrived at his first coming. The world becomes brighter over time until the second coming. The church wins the battle with the world prior to the second coming. Second coming occurs after the millennium. Therefore, postmillennialism is true. Now you say, oh, I'm, an, I'm an amillennialist, though. Okay, that's fine. Okay, you can take that, take that, that, uh, that label. I'm fine with that. If what you're saying by that term, whatever that means, is different, like contradictory to this, to postmillennialism, then you're wrong. Right? If it's not, then you're just a postmillennialist. 
So we don't have to get into all of the nuances of like what you actually mean by this term. It really does not matter. Like, let's just move it out of the conversation. Like, are you for this position? If you are, I think you should just call yourself a post-millennialist. If you're not, you're wrong. And you say, well, no, you're wrong. Well, let's go back through the questions then. Let's start from the first one and just walk them through it. Questions on this? I find this very clarifying when we talk through eschatology. I, used, I grew up in the faith in a pre-millennial environment, and I loved it deeply. And, and God blessed me in numerous ways by starting with that, I think. Um, but I, found it, I find it very hard to talk about these things amongst the brethren in any kind of clarity. We, we go so quickly get into all these images of like certain disputed passages. And at the end of the day, like, do you really feel like you've accomplished anything? It's like, you, you haven't changed your position. Well, why should you? It's not a good argument you know, to get out of it. But you haven't really presented a good argument for it. So it's just like people constantly th throwing things at each other. I think with good intentions. I don't think this is in, intended to be unfruitful, but it is almost entirely unfruitful. This happens a lot with Christian debates on this topic. Yeah, go ahead, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So, pastor would probably know this better better than I would. But you have dispensationalists are a are a um, a species of premillennialism. So, yeah, premillennialism is this camp. And then you have subcategories of this camp. Um, so the genus is the premillennialist, and one of the species is the dispensationalist. And you have different forms of dispensationalist. I'm not sure exactly. Well, I know the rapture is a big part of dispensationalism. Um, then you have the you know the pre, the mid, and the post-trib rapture, and you have all, and then you have the millennium where they're resacrificing animals because of Ezekiel uh, 40 and 40 through 47, something like that. Um, so you have all these beliefs that are, obviously, we think strange. Um, <laughs> it's, it's probably the strangest one, honestly. The rapture should be strange to us. Uh, but re-sacrificing animals in the, in the millennium, it's got to be the strangest, strangest one. Uh, okay, but so if someone could clarify, I'm not, I haven't been this, in this in a while. What would distinguish a dispensationalist from a non-dispensationalist premillennialist? Did they have to just deny the rapture? Or what's what's the key difference? Yeah, go ahead. Oh yes, okay. And so that little white page between your old and new testament. Yes. Yes. So, so, so through works. Yeah, it is kind of true. You're, you're saved in a different way yes. through dif different dispensations in the past. Yeah, that's actually bringing back memories. Yes. Of. And then they will say after the, not everybody, but they'll say that those Jews that are going to be saved after the rapture are going to be saved by their blood without the Holy Spirit being there or whatever. You know, okay, all right. 
Okay. Sorry, what was the question? Um, I don't think that the, historically the church used such terms before, like, last 150, 200 years. Postmillennialism, amillennialism. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure how the nomenclature became well-known. I'm not sure. I find it unhelpful. I find it unhelpful. Okay. Yeah, it's probably true. Yeah, I find it unhelpful. I think the I think we're stuck with it for a while, but I find it find it very unhelpful. Clearly, uh, sorry, I love my amillennial brothers, but like, what does this mean? Is this like so? Yeah, but if they had no term, I think it would force the issue much more. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if so. Some some premillennialists or, or uh, yeah, premillennialists, when pushed when push comes to shove, they would say that Jesus is reigning. I mean, how do you deny that? It's like, come on. But it, it's so softened that he's really not reigning. Like he's just sitting there waiting. Think, Go ahead, Pastor. I think, I think they're absolutely right. The way that you laid it out is 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 correct. Um, I think the, the reason why people are pushed into the amiable view, uh, you know, with how can Christ be reigning and not reigning at the same time, has more to do with the, um, the sort of obedience of the church. So it doesn't, if 70% of the world is converted, but if the church is in the same condition it is now, what benefit is that in the world? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So conversion doesn't equal influence in the world per se. It's not a straight line. And so mm -hmm. the reason why these people are pushed towards a mill is because it, it explains Christ reigning and not reigning because of the state of So it's kind of like Jesus changed my heart, but I really don't care that much. So. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, if you, I mean, I don't want to mention the college, but one college actually came up with back in the 80s or maybe the 90s. It was the, the idea of carnal Christianity. Yeah. To explain this division, which doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they were, this is where the narrative comes from. And so people, the trouble with the rapture theology is that it, it denies Christ's accomplishment. That's the biggest issue. Mm -hmm. Christ didn't actually accomplish it. If you have to rebuild a temple and start a temple, <laughs> you've got really problems with Christ. But I think the A-Mill view, what it's trying to do, is it's trying to argue the point that just because you have sent sent the world converted doesn't mean that the world has influenced influence like would you, I find that humorous that someone would come up with that. Like you almost could you come up with that if you were not then living that same life? Well, that's exactly what I was gonna say. I mean I grew up in Chicago, we college is close to Chicago, and in the eighties it was Jesus Christ is my savior but not my Lord. Mm -hmm. right? It's the same idea of being a carnal Christian. But in today's modern society, I think there's two justifications for the on mill. One is I'm a peacemaker, and they're really, you know, I think it's just all going to pan out in the end. It just doesn't really matter. So I'm trying to be in the middle. Yeah. Be friendly with both camps. 
said is Jesus really isn't Lord of their lives and they're not taking Christianity as seriously. They see mm-hmm. Jesus as a savior. That's maybe how they were converted. Mm-hmm. Except Jesus in your life would be wonderful. <laughs> yeah. I think it was good. I think you started with what does loving Jesus look like? Yes. Because that's where that's where it goes wrong. Yes. Yeah. This. Uh, yeah. Well, I just, it's, it's, for someone who loves Jesus, this should be so unimaginable that someone could actually say, "Yes, I believe these things, but it doesn't really affect my life. I kind of live in the world." And then, what if the whole world became like that? Well, then. It's like, it's also like the David was Saul thing, where even though David could have killed Saul, mm-hmm. he knew that he couldn't kill someone. Even though it was wrong for the nation. Yeah, correct. Yes. So there's that tension between sure. what, is, what is truly right and what is actually losing. Yeah. Yost. Yeah, can you clarify, please? Um, you're not saying, I know you can't possibly be saying, that all mill guys uh, acknowledge all those things but don't obey Jesus. That's not what you're saying. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, so no, no, no. I'm oh, okay. No, I'm saying the, 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 um, the pre-mill position of a world could be converted but not really obeying Jesus. That's, that's, the, that's the carnal Christian. That's nothing to do with amillennialism. That's like, the, the whole carnal Christian debate is like 40 years old and dead as a doornail. Yeah, yeah, I'm just, we're, we were just trying to talk about like okay. someone, this is like, okay. yeah, I, we left the amillennial position uh, like 10 minutes. Right. Yeah, so it was, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yep. Well, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I, sorry for that misunderstanding or my miscommunication. Um, yeah. This. This is. I don't, I don't think it's dead at all. No. No. Not at all. Not even close. Just go, go to go to Christian Coalition college campuses. I didn't know what that is. <laughs> well, let me let me let me let me get to a. Okay. So bring common ground on this. It would be that, it, for the sake of our conversation, can the world be, con- like, could someone come along and say the world is converted for Christ, but it's not going to manifest in the way that you're talking about? And that's where the carnal Christian comes up. Regardless of your position, it's just, is this possible? This is a thousand years of peace that Christians have <laughs> Yes, okay. Let me, let, me, let me end with this. I was, we were doing our, our Bible time as a family, and we're going through the Bible, we're in Second Chronicles, and we came across this passage in chapter 6. I'm like, this is wonderful. Obviously, it's all wonderful, but as far as what we're, what we're learning here. So Solomon, the temple's been built, Solomon's dedicating the temple, and all the people rise. And Solomon's then talking, you know, dedicating the temple. It's such a beautiful passage. And he says, then hear thou from heaven, he's talking to God, from thy dwelling place, and forgive and render unto every man according unto all his ways, whose heart thou knowest, for thou only knowest the hearts of the children of men, that they may fear thee to walk in thy ways so long as they live in the land which thou gavest unto our fathers. Moreover, concerning the stranger, which is not of thy people Israel. Remember, Solomon has tens of thousands of strangers who are getting things from the mountains who are, are helping to build the temple, right? He's using their labor, leaning on them to build the kingdom, which is, Van Til would say, plundering the Egyptians, right? We should plunder what God has built through common grace. Okay, he says, Moreover, concerning the stranger, which is not of thy people, Israel, but is come from a far country for thy great namesake, 
and thy mighty hand and thy stretched out arm, if they come and pray in this house, this is genuine prayer, then hear thou from the heavens, even from my dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calleth thee for, that all people of the earth may know thy name and fear thee, as doth thy people Israel, and may know that this house which I have built is called by thy name. Amen. Gosh, that's great. All right. So we have two more sessions. We'll end here. We have two more sessions we're going to get into now. Okay, this is the story I think God wrote that we're living out. Is it the best story? What if Adam never fell? That's a different story. Is that a better story? I'm going to argue no. This is the best story that God could write. And so that's the one he wrote. We're going to get through that. And it's a proof. It's going to be great. We're going to go through a deductive proof for the next two sessions on this. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your blessing in this conversation. We thank you for your sovereignty over us looking for a building. God, I pray that we would be patient and yet active in going, uh, taking the opportunities that you give us to obey you and getting a new building, to grow our worship, and most importantly, to grow our obedience to you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.